you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joining us from Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, infectious disease specialist and co-director of Cedars COVID-19 Recovery Program, Catherine Lay. Dr. Lay, very good to have you with us again. Thank you for having me. Uh, let's start, first of all, with what we're seeing with the Omicron variant. Uh, we continue to see record high hospitalizations of people who test positive for COVID-19, although it appears a significant percentage of those people are, are those who went to the hospital to be treated for things other than COVID and then subsequently tested positive. Uh, it seems this is a good example of how rapid the Omicron variant has spread. What are you experiencing at Cedars? Um, so at Cedars, just like all the other hospitals, basically in California and across the country, of course, we're seeing increased um, uh, positivity rates in in terms of, of COVID. Um, we assume that most of these are going to be Omicron, obviously, for obvious reasons. Um, but you know, as just like every other experience across the country, um, luckily it does not seem to be causing as severe disease. So a lot of these are incidentally um, positive tests, just like you mentioned. And to underscore that point, the New York Times with uh, a story this morning that a new study of nearly 70,000 California COVID patients demonstrates Omicron causes less severe disease than other coronavirus variants. The results from the California study aligning with similar findings from South Africa, Britain, and Denmark, also animal studies, have have concluded similarly. Compared with Delta, Omicron infections were half as likely to send people to the hospital. Now, this was a review of 52,000 Omicron patients identified from their electronic medical records at Kaiser Permanente of Southern California. The researchers found not a single patient in that 52,000 of Omicron patients went on a ventilator during that time. Also, we should mention all of those in the study were symptomatic. This does not include people who tested positive but were asymptomatic. Uh, and uh, they analyzed uh, just under the 70,000 uh, symptomatic patients who tested uh, positive for coronavirus from November 30th to January 1st, 
Three-quarters of the positive samples uh, contained Omicron. The rest were Delta, which enabled them to do this comparison. Dr. Lay, your thoughts on the results of this study? Obviously, that's very exciting. <laughs> um, you and I have talked about this before, about how we we hope that as the pandemic kind of goes on, that it becomes, you know, almost like a, a yearly flu-like illness where some people might get sick, but most people don't end up um, being very sick or need um, hospital stay or any treatment. Um, I was able to just take a quick look at the study. I was only able to see just, just the abstract and it doesn't look like it's peer reviewed yet, but, um, you know, I'd be interested to know how many of these patients were vaccinated versus those who are not, um, you know, in California, we do have a uh, higher vaccination rate. So I wonder if this study and the results that we see here are completely, um, applicable to other parts of the country. All right. Dr. Lay, what symptoms are you seeing specifically with Omicron uh, compared to previous variants, particularly given that it appears Omicron is more of an upper level respiratory condition, less likely to affect the lungs? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. Overall, you know, like we've mentioned before, it does seem very mild. So a lot of um, runny nose, nasal congestion, some sore throat. People are still reporting some fevers, but there's particularly less lower respiratory symptoms such as um, shortness of breath, which I think is kind of the most important thing. People also used to talk a lot about you know, chest pain, chest congestion, chest tightness, which we're not hearing as much. And in fact, a lot of people are kind of chalking this up to seasonal allergies. Um, so it's really important to remember that even if you're having mild symptoms, that it's important to go and get tested um, and be cognizant of who you're around, make sure that you're wearing your mask. We have a question from Chris in La Habra, who emailed us at comments at kpcc.org. I work in a school. We're experiencing an increase in COVID cases with our staff and students. Right now, positively testing staff and students are able to return after five days, but sometimes they return still coughing or showing minor symptoms. What is the average timeline of when someone who has tested positive is no longer shedding virus? That's an excellent question. And again, these are really new um, guidelines that were dropped by the CDC uh, just last week, I believe. Um, time moves so differently now. But, um, you know, those those guidelines were based on studies that have shown that really after the first three, four days, the the how infectious somebody is, even if they're having ongoing symptoms, which is different, um, than an infectivity um, really, really drops. And so that's why, you know, kind of balancing the need for people to continue to live their lives and, um, you know, go to their, their, their workplaces and, and continue on and um, is they're really trying to balance it with the likelihood of um, transmissibility. So, you know, that's, that's what the numbers are. Um, again, going by symptoms is a little bit difficult because you can have ongoing symptoms due to inflammation. So similarly, uh, compared to, you know, the flu or other respiratory viruses, such as, um, RSV, which is something that we've had along, obviously for a long time, um, you can have symptoms for 
for weeks, for three weeks. Sometimes people even have a week, uh, sometimes for over a month, but that certainly doesn't necessarily mean that you're very infectious. So there is a distinction there. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, many of us have had very bad colds or had flu, then it, it took, you know, a long time to finally clear out. Exactly. So we'd be coughing, you know, but, but we weren't infectious during that time, that, that period mm-hmm. of past, but, but it can take that. Absolutely. 866-893-KPECC. Uh, Jeff in Monterey Park emailed us, in general, what is the timeline of an Omicron infection from initial infection to post-recovery? And is that timeline different for Omicron versus previous variants? That's also a really good question. I don't know if I have hard numbers to to really answer that um, with complete confidence, but I will say anecdotally, because it's much milder, people tend to feel sick for a few days and then improve. And like we just discussed, they may have some lingering cough, et cetera, but generally the severe symptoms don't last for more than a few days for most people. 866-893-KPCC. Denise in Crenshaw Manor asks, uh, what's involved for hospital workers treating COVID versus non-COVID patients? Do employees need to change clothes when they go in and out of a COVID patient's room? Anything different they have to do? Yes, dramatically different. So, um, and this has not changed in the Omicron uh, age compared to prior variants. Um all patients are screened in the hospital. So even if you come into the hospital without having any COVID symptoms, you are screened as a patient. And so we're able to identify patients who have a symptomatic or asymptomatic COVID right when they come into the hospital. They are put on isolation precautions um, in rooms where there are signs everywhere denoting, and of course in their chart as well, that um, this is a patient who, who has COVID. And all personnel who go into the rooms, whether that be nurses, physicians, you know, our um, janitorial staff, our dietary staff, um, they have to wear special precautions, which are then removed upon leaving the room. 866-893-KPECC. Maria in Pomona says, I was under the impression, even if you're fully vaccinated, you can still be a carrier of the virus and transmit it to others. So why is it if children are exposed at school and vaccinated, they're okay to remain in school? Um, so it is true that you can still transmit the disease. It's much less likely So I can't speak specifically to, um, you know, specific schools and what they're recommending, but um, even though it's possible that you can transmit, um, usually if you're asymptomatic and you're fully vaccinated, that risk is very low. And presumably this is in an environment where everybody's masking. At this point, districts are even having students mask outdoors. Yes, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, You know, vaccinated or not, uh, symptomatic or not, positive or not, this all kind of everything that we talk about is really based on the caveat that people should still be social distancing and and wearing masks. Corey in Ukaipa, good to have you with us. Your comment or question, please. I actually am a respiratory therapist at a local children's hospital. And interestingly enough, we're seeing the largest influx of children that we've seen during the entire pandemic. 
and they're actually being affected by COVID, some of the symptoms that we're actually seeing is an uptick in croup, uh, where they're actually testing positive for COVID, and in many cases have no other uh, viruses coming back on their RBPs or any other comorbidities. I'm just wondering if this is localized at my hospital or if it's something that's been noted for children at other places. Corey, just a quick question. Are these kids who are typically not vaccinated? Uh, I'm not privy to that information always. I'm more of the treating the symptoms of the sure. moment. So I, I can't speak to every patient. Okay. Corey, I, I appreciate it. Dr. Lay. That's uh, very interesting because I actually just um, I, I keep up to date on kind of, um, you know, people's experience across the country from from various physicians. I am not a pediatrician, so this is not my personal experience. However, I did just read very similar reports, although a lot of um, those physicians were talking about an increased rates of co-infection with RSV and flu. It is during it is that season for sure. Um, that these kids are ending up in the hospital. But I think the um, what you're seeing with more croup types of symptoms rather than lower respiratory symptoms are exactly what we see in the adult population and, and reflects the um, higher concentration of virus in the upper airways uh, rather than the lower airways. So it doesn't really surprise me. Um, and then, I, I you know, to Terry's question, um, the physician that I'm referring to who is talking about her experience in her hospital, she did mention that these are generally um, either younger patients who are too young to be vaccinated or patients who are slightly older but did not get vaccinated. And uh, I'm curious your thoughts. I appreciate your call, Corey, uh, about the low percentage of kids who are getting vaccinated um, you know, we're seeing that even even with it available for a couple of months now in the five to 11 age group nationally, just over 17 percent are fully vaccinated. California, just shy of 19 percent. Um, it would seem concerning that we have such a small percentage of the younger ones getting vaccinated. It is concerning. It, it's disappointing. But at the same time, um, you know, I think even the fact that it's so low, even in California, um, you know, kind of reflects the fact that it's not it's not about politics in this case. It's really about concerned parents and not sure, not knowing what is best for their for their kids. But as a medical professional, um, I have to reinforce that if it's approved, it's safe. And, you know, I think. I think the, the logic behind it is that in general, kids do pretty well, um, you know, especially now with Omicron, that's what we're wondering if, is generally everybody does um, pretty well and has pretty mild symptoms. So, um, but what we're not thinking about is kind of other side effects, which would be, you know, the development of long COVID, which does happen in uh, younger children, adolescents, et cetera. Um, and it's also a roll of the dice. You know, we don't know how one child might respond. Um, you know, does the child have some undiagnosed asthma maybe because they're too young and it just hasn't presented yet? And are they going to be at higher risk? And so um, it is a roll of the dice. And I, I don't think that it's uh, the potential risks are very, very low. And so I don't think that um, I would 
I would not recommend avoiding the vaccine. John in Long Beach. Um, I don't know how you feel about being called Dr. John, but thank you, sir, for joining us. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege uh, to be called Dr. John. Um, just my friends who understand who he is or was. <laughs> so the question to Dr. Lay is, uh, I believe getting an Omicron virus uh, infection doesn't give you uh, a, a lot of immunity against Delta. And I'm wondering if it's a good idea for physicians and uh, loved ones of people who have not been vaccinated yet to go and get vaccinated now because they've had a brush with Delta's wimpy cousin and they don't want to meet Delta full on. So why don't they just go get vaccinated now and avoid um, getting it versus like, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, I've already had the infection now, so I don't need to get vaccinated. Yeah, that's a great point, John. Thank you, Dr. Lay. Yeah, those are really, really good points. And I'm sure you get those questions just like I get those questions all the time. Um, so a couple of points, which is one, we know that immunity, whether from the vaccine or from natural infection, wanes over time. And it's actually looking like it might be a little bit shorter than we think in terms of how robust your response might be to subsequent infection. So, you know, after three months, I think that it's it's important to um you know, what if you got COVID that you don't necessarily assume that you are um, immune and that's where vaccinations play a huge role. The other thing to consider is that, um, you know, Omicron is not going to be the last strain that we see by any means. And while we're hoping that subsequent strains are weaker and, and cause milder disease, we don't know that yet. And so, you know, just because you get you've had Delta or Omicron or whatever doesn't mean that this is over. Um, I think we still have have a long ways ahead of us, unfortunately. Um, and really, the way to kind of prevent future infections is through vaccinations and, and boosters. Um, and then, you know, the, the last point that I will say is that um, there seems to be some uh, belief out there that um, somehow natural immunity versus uh, vaccine-induced immunity is different, um, better or worse, and it's it's neither. Um, I think that if anything, getting vaccinated obviously gives you um, sometimes better immunity because it's a measured response. You're getting a measured dose, and and we know what the response is going to be. So. Um, what? That that's also important. And then actually the other thing that's really important is that the current drugs that are used to treat COVID, such as, you know, monoclonal antibody infusions are actually showing that there might not be as effective against Omicron. So if you are somebody who's unvaccinated, who's relying on those types of treatments, um, that might not be such a good bet. And uh, pardon me, because I, I didn't study up on this before our conversation, but it just it makes me wonder what what, what has been the argument that natural immunity is more powerful? What is there a study that was cited by the proponents of that view that natural immunity is superior to vaccination? Because we're aware of the studies that show that um, that vaccination is, is a more consistent and longer lasting form of immunity. Immunity, but but what, if anything, reinforces the view that getting sick with COVID provides more protection than the vaccine? I don't believe that's based on anything. I have not seen any um, data that, that show that. I think it's more just a 
belief that, you know, whatever natural, um, is better. <laughs> okay. Um, that that's my guess. Okay. But no, yeah, there's no data that were that. Cause sometimes they're like one-off studies or something that people grab onto that are later, you know, found not to be sustained with, with, uh, larger examinations. So I didn't know if that was the case. John, thank yeah. you for that. Appreciate the question very much. Uh, Christopher in Pasadena emailed us, is there evidence of long COVID associated with Omicron? Uh, and I wonder, uh, Christopher, if if it's even been around long enough for us to know that. Dr. Lay, is is it too soon or are we starting to get a sense of that? You're right. I think it's too soon. Um, we're right in the middle of the surge. We typically don't see um, kind of the patients who start to develop co- uh, long COVID till about two or three months later, since that's kind of the definition, right? So most people are going to get better from COVID um, after infection within three months, even though that seems long, but we do give it that much time um, for all the reasons that we discussed earlier. And so we don't see people in our program until at least three months later. So we're a few months out. We'll, we'll see. Um, you know, I, I hope not because the surge is so huge. Um, otherwise, we're going to be very busy again. Uh, but the the concerning thing, you know, that I I think about is that a lot of my patients in the long COVID clinic did not have very severe disease. Actually, two thirds um, and upwards actually had very mild disease. Were never hospitalized. Some people were even asymptomatic. So. I don't have particular uh, reason to think that Omicron would be any different. Isn't that odd to have someone asymptomatic during the immediate period after exposure and then weeks later start developing long COVID symptoms? That seems so strange. It is very strange, and I wish I had an answer for that, but yeah. it's one of the many things that, that people another. who are researching long COVID are trying to look into. Yet another mystery of of, of long COVID. Uh, since you were last on with us, is there anything that comes to mind that you feel like you have more clarity on or that's been learned about long COVID? Um, there has been, you know, one of the big questions that I've always had with long COVID is whether or not there's some type of viral reservoir. And um, I was hoping that more people were doing uh, those types of experiments, although, you know, it it tends to be very involved. It tends to be they have to sample multiple different sites of tissues and stuff. And so um, it's hard to recruit patients for that. But there is some data coming out now that shows a potential persistent viral reservoir in several types of tissues, which is not, you know, unusual with viruses per se, but whether or not this could be a uh, possible mechanism for long COVID is is my question. And then the next question that naturally follows is, okay, so then does antiviral therapy um, have any role here? And, you know, we're not quite there yet, but that would be my next question. Um, and I'm excited to see if there's any studies out there that are going to look at that eventually. What what organs would be the most likely candidates to to have a virus reservoir? And and then how how do you get the antiviral treatment actually to the location where the reservoir exists? Such good questions. So um, before COVID, I actually did a lot of um, clinical research with HIV reservoirs and, um, you know, other viruses are similar. The most common sites of reservoirs are in the gut and in the central nervous system. So brain tissue, 
um, but also in a lot of lymph node tissues as well. And that's distributed throughout the body. Um, with COVID, I think the gut has been a huge um, area of research. Um, as you recall, way back when um, people were beginning in the beginning of the pandemic, they had a lot of GI symptoms. And oftentimes that would be kind of their, their most predominant symptom rather than respiratory. So, um, but the question about getting the antiviral drugs in there into the right place, that is a very complicated question. Um, some drugs just don't penetrate these, these areas um, very well. And then the other concept is, you know, especially with HIV, sometimes it's hard to even know how to get to these cells um, that are harboring the virus because sometimes you can't really you can't identify them. So um, lots of lots of unanswered questions. Oh. And I think I should have been a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. We're at 866-893-KPCC, or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Carmen in Covina asks, does the amount of virus that you get correlated to the amount shed by the person from whom you received it? Oh, um, not necessarily, um, because the amount of virus that you uh, develop in your body, so what we call the viral load, I would say, is really more dependent on your immune system, whether or not you're vaccinated, whether or not you have any um, other medical illnesses that make you at risk. Um, but what I, I will say is that the level of the viral load that a person has obviously correlates with how infectious they are. Michelle in West Los Angeles emailed a doctor on the AirTalk COVID segment recently said chances of getting long COVID from a breakthrough case of Omicron are slim to none. Does Dr. Lay agree with this? Is this what she is seeing with her patients? Um, I'm not sure how to make that conclusion yet. Like I said, I think it's way too soon to see whether or not long COVID develops from Omicron. So I really can't comment on that. 866-893-KPCC. Um, Jack in Venice emailed us, does Dr. Lay agree with L.A. County Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer that all non-essential gatherings should be suspended? Um, you know, I don't envy her job. So <laughs> I None can't of us say do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I cannot say if I agree or disagree, but I will say that I personally am telling people that if you do not need to be gathering, um, you know, to, to not do it right now. Um, I personally know a lot of friends and, and family and co-workers who, like everybody else over the holidays, uh, got together. And most of these people are vaccinated um, and boosted. And there were huge breakouts within families. So, um, you know, it it's, it's a real concern and it's very, very transmissible. Um, and so, you know, I, I agree. I mean, if you even just look at the numbers, the 750,000 new cases per day is insane. Um, so I I understand uh, the basis of, of those guidelines at this point. Brendan in Glassell Park uh, wonders, what data do we have on outdoor transmission of the virus to support the implementation of the outdoor masking policy? I assume Brendan is speaking specifically about how schools have gone to this. Um. 
That's a really good question. I, I wish I knew the exact answer for that. As far as I know, I haven't seen any new data specific to Omicron uh, in regards to outdoor um, transmissibility. But if we're kind of referring, you know, specifically to schools masking in and out, that's a very different situation. So recall that the initial guidelines about not wearing masks for outdoor gatherings was again based on the caveat that people were relatively social distancing, um, even in an outdoor setting. So if you were going to a really packed outdoor restaurant, I personally would not feel safe without my, my mask. And similarly in schools, if we're talking about, you know, kids playing on playgrounds and sharing toys and things like that, that is a very different situation, um, where there is much closer contact and exchange of, you know, fluids and whatnot. We all know how kids are. Um, and so, you know, even without having actual numbers about outdoor transmission, I think it's very reasonable um, that particularly in schools, that's what people should do. Frank in cathedral cities, as with Omicron appearing to cause fewer serious symptoms, at what point should we declare this an endemic infection and put an end to all the restrictions? Such a good question. And again, I think we're, we're kind of, you know, bordering on more um, philosophical arguments at this time. I, I have, I hope that it does end up becoming an endemic uh, disease and a yearly disease where just like the flu, there's some seasonality to it. There's a yearly booster, you know, or a vaccine. Um, and that wouldn't surprise me. However, I do think it's a little bit early to say, right? Because this is really the first variant we've had that um, is not causing such severe disease so far. And we don't know what, if there's any going to be, you know, new long-term symptoms that come up, who knows? Um, so I, I, I think that that is the hope and what we should look for. Um, I think that's a realistic uh, expectation, but I think it's a little bit too soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.